Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale September 23rd, 2020. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, I am uh, a little upset that you guys didn't do a show last week without me. It's good to have you back. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad we had a uh, wonderful co-host to fill in for me. Hopefully she can come back again. Uh, I did take the time off. Uh, and, and while I was, you know, out vacationing and seeing the sites and doing things, I was able to read up on the comics that we have this week, which is great. We also will have a, I was going to call him a wonderful guest, but he's kind of a monster mm. Um, mm. at the same time. You know, mm. he is mm. Mr. Ryan Stegman artist of Venom and the King in Black and so many comics, uh, Absolute Carnage and and so many books. Um, but he, yes, he's a, he's a friend and he's wonderful. And uh, we're going to be talking about some Wolverine books with him, which I'm very excited about because he's not, he doesn't get to draw a ton of Wolverine. So this is going to be great. Yeah. So it's, I just love that kind of thing, especially with someone who's so busy, you know what I mean? To like, you get them in and, um, and hear their perspective on something like especially like that you know this this wolverine run that we're talking about so iconic and i think so foundational for so many people so cool to be able to gonna be able to talk to him about drawing the lines between those two things so awesome for sure but before we get to that we have to talk about the new books out this week if anybody's going to talk about this first book and this amazing run you're like You're the number one fan. Thank you for that. The first book we're talking about this week is Daredevil number 22. It's written by Chip Zdarsky with pencils by Francesco Mobili, uh, inks by Victor Olazaba, colors by Mattia Iacono, uh, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Um, What's going on here? Daredevil is on trial. Daredevil has been booked. You know, I think it it is uh, a really kind of novel dynamic that takes the lawyerly Matt Murdock, um, but, uh, you know, places him in a position where he has to assume his alter ego and then kind of go through this whole legal process. Um, that's where we start. The issue goes in a hundred different directions after that. It's really, really awesome stuff. Um, uh, you know, I just think this, this book and this team just continues to hit it out of the park with every issue. Yeah, seriously. And Francesco, the way he draws Daredevil's costume, there's something about it that feels so real. Mm -hmm. You know, it looks like if you just had a bunch of red clothing and like if it was a certain style, you could be wearing that and you could be Daredevil. It's like I I anticipate more people cosplaying that. Also, I love pockets. So give me me (laughs) pants like that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, quick note huge shout out to francesco mobley for jumping on i mean this is like i said the the creative team is operating at such a high level here so to jump on for an issue here or there like francesco does here and just make it so seamless and so excellent uh is uh, no small feat so it's really great stuff yeah uh really great stuff indeed in dr doom number seven written by christopher cantwell art by salvador la roca colors by guru efx and letters by vcs Corey pettit I, so I remember very vividly reading this issue, yeah. uh, which was supposed to come out in the spring. Right. Uh, and then, you know, everything that, that went on, it is what it is. But I remember reading this issue because it it has one of my favorite panels of comics this year, if not of all time. It is a panel of Dr. Doom riding a bear in the snow. He's got a harness <laughs> on the bear. The, the, the panel yeah, yeah. Is, is like... 
60% of the page, almost 50% of the page. <laughs> and he just says, I have returned. Oh, it's just, so awesome. Like somewhere along the line, doom befriended a bear. <laughs> it is just the best thing. I like, if I, if I could possibly hope for one thing, we ever see Dr. Doom in, in any sort of live action environment. I want him riding a bear. And then the ending, the ending is so bananas. I am not going to say a dang thing, but if you are not reading this Dr. Doom book, anybody out there, um, you could dive in with this issue. You could read the first six already on Marvel Unlimited. I mean, I think it's a perfect way to see like, yes, Doom is one of the greatest characters at Marvel. I completely agree. This, this series really is doing him justice. Um, all right, next up this week, we have Fantastic Four Antithesis number two, uh, which is by Mark Wade and Neil Adams. Uh, I pretty much could stop there and everybody <laughs> would need to rush to their comic shops to pick it up. But the inks are by Mark Farmer, colors by Laura Martin, letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. There's this great kind of dual storyline that's going on um, in this issue a little bit that I really, really enjoy. It really feels like this uh, classic Marvel space adventure kind of story where you're getting what's happening in the present. You're getting a little bit that just happened and then, you know, we're just shot. Uh, like a bullet into uh, what's happening right now. Uh, It's so, so much fun. And really, there's a fun combo in terms of the art and I think narrative style that's going on here that is a really cool combination of what feels like... It feels like if Jack Kirby was like doing a Fantastic Four story like in the 90s, Mm, almost. Yeah. Like I said, I didn't have to say any damn words beyond... um, uh, beyond who are you know who are the creators on this book um, that kind of speaks for itself it's really really fun reading uh, all right let's move on to immortal she-hulk number one written by al ewing art by john davis hunt colors by marcio Meniz, letters by vc's Corey pettit uh, so this one is <laughs> another bonkers <laughs> issue so one it is fallout from empire the big uh, event we just finished up wherein uh, She-Hulk, a.k.a. Hulk, a.k.a. Jennifer Walters, was uh, taken over and killed by the Kotati. They used her body as a like a husk to sort of infiltrate the Avengers and cause chaos and damage. And, and it was terrifying and gross and wonderful. It is part, like, for a lot of people, I think, an introduction to who She-Hulk is. We got her origin in here. We've got her relationship to uh, a number of different characters. Um, And it is also very much a continuation of the larger narrative that Al Ewing is telling in Immortal Hulk. And with that last part, it is gross. It is weird. It is just, it's, it's like, it's everything. You know, a lot of this is about death and rebirth and... Jen Walters trying to figure out, wow, what's my deal now? Am I, I guess I'm just immortal. I keep dying. And then by the end, it just turns into a total nightmare uh, for her, for the reader, for someone who is like looking at the bigger picture of what Immortal Hulk is doing. It is, man, it's great. It's really, really, really great. And so detailed in the art. Um, John Davis Hunt uh, coming in here and doing like, very fine line work in a lot of places. It's it's killer. It's funny coming off the back of Immortal She-Hulk just by 
coincidence that we go from I now to J for Juggernaut number one. This is written by Fabian Nicieza with art by Ron Garney, colors by Matt Mila, and letters by VCs Josephina. This issue really kind of feels to me like the Immortal Hulk take on Juggernaut. Um, you know, it's this character that, you know, Bruce Banner obviously has had decades and decades of, um, you know, incredibly rich history and character work. I think Juggernaut, um, I think still when people think of this character, they still think of the battering ram first. Um, and this, uh, issue is kicking off something that is so fascinating and really starts to dig into who this character is as a person and, more than that, really challenges Juggernaut on the difficulty of being who he is and having the powers that he does and maybe the unintended consequences of being Juggernaut. And uh, look, I think a certain element of this is self-evident given the fact that it's Fabian Nicieza and Ron Garney, um, you know, two people who have left just like finger prints all over the Marvel Universe in enormous ways. Um, but I, this issue really had me feeling for this character in a way I was not expecting it. And I think given the new ground that's being forged in the entire world of the mutants and mutant history, kind of um, uh, reframing so much of that, I think this is the perfect time to dive into a character like this and really ask tough questions of him. It's the start of something that I'm really excited about. I freaking love that issue. It was really good. Yeah. Another issue I love this week is Maestro number two, written by Peter David. Art by Herman Peralta on the main story. There is a backup story, which we'll get to in a bit. Uh, colors by Jesus Arbatov and letters by VCs Ariana Mar. Um, man, Herman Peralta, I just is like friggin' 1992 dream team level right now. Like you just put them on the squad of dudes who are on fire, especially He's doing like the kitten caboodle of the work here. The textures and his colors, the the line work, the just the weirdness, the every bit and piece of what he does here is so cool. On top of that, you also have Peter David, who is telling you a story of not necessarily just the maestro, but how the Hulk becomes the maestro and how he becomes this horrible, <laughs> evil character or seemingly evil. I think what's interesting here is seeing Hulk's still got his humanity. He still has his like empathy. There's a moment where Hulk is like distraught over what humans have done to the planet, to the animals. It's so like it evokes feeling in you. And it, it really does that very well. Uh, we're starting to see some of the pieces come together in this storyline here, uh, particularly as you get to the end of the main story and you see that there's a character involved and you're like, wait a minute what the heck is going on um i love it I, I love it love it love it then the backup story that i mentioned also written by peter david and it's called relics it has art by dale keown and colors by jason keith uh this one is uh really cool it follows one of the characters from hulk future imperfect and from this uh this new maestro storyline and um really interesting way <laughs> like I, I read it and i was like so sad for the world that they're living in that the situation goes down the way it does uh, that doesn't give anything away it's um it sort of like propels me into a almost like a, a what if scenario like what if xyz how could that have changed but 
alas, such as the next book we have this week is Spider-Man number four. It's written by J.J. Abrams and Henry Abrams with art by Sara Pichelli. Inking assists by Elisabetta D'Amico. Colors by Dave Stewart and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. This is a disturbing tale. Uh, I will say there is like a kind of undead cyborg wrong version of the avengers in here which is really fun and really crazy um some great design work i think as you would expect given the creative team involved here but beyond that there there are some like faces in here that are truly haunting (laughs) um uh and uh it it all adds up to i think a, a story that's super challenging for ben parker who's the lead character in this series this young kind of spider-man figure who's stepped into the role via um wildly unexpected circumstances and it's um you know i think it's coming to a a, a fever pitch a culmination that is um super dramatic and really exciting you know it, this this book does continue to surprise me Another book that kind of surprised me this week is Spider-Man Noir number four, written by Margaret Stoll, art by Juan Ferreira, letters by VCs Travis Lanham. And I'm not surprised by like how much I love it. I'm surprised in a couple of ways. One is in this issue, there's a panel of Electro. Electro, this version of him is he's he's got the overalls on. He looks like he's just, you know, working in a factory somewhere and he's got these electric powers. But Juan draws him, draws something on his face. I've never seen drawn before. And it's it, that's sort of like the modus operandi for Juan Ferreira for me for the last couple of years is like it's beautiful and nuts. And this book is full of like amazing double page. They're not splashes. They're just, you know, laid out over two pages so he can tell the story in a more widescreen mm-hmm. way. Um, and it has got like giant bugs and crazy things and so for me you know like a lot of this was um a mix of like cool 30s action spy you know black and white type of movies but then this one takes a real weird dark creepy turn in all the best ways and i think that's you know credit to margie for just continuing to you know zig instead of zagging and doing really cool stuff and you know continues with all the characters you get that everybody feels exactly the way they should but it just goes into all these different territories and then this book (laughs) this book rules it's so weird uh and i i hope anybody who is like ah nicholas cage is spider-man noir i like that character i'm gonna try this out i hope this has blown your freaking minds because it's so good (laughs) I totally, totally could not agree more. Um, All right, more Spidey action coming up next with Spider-Woman number four. It's written by Carla Pacheco with art by Pere Perez. Colors by Frank D'Armada and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Octavia Vermis is shaping up here to be one of the, uh, if not the main antagonist at this point in the story. And I'm really a fan of... Uh, the kind of mano a mano showdown that is um, happening here. Uh, It feels like a really colossal matching of uh, mind and body and strength and powers in a really fun way. I just love the foil that Carla has set up for 
Jess Drew with this character. Um, and again, some really surprising moments. One of my favorite things about this series, the last thing I'll say is it's becoming a, I just love a book that secretly starts introducing its own like um, narrative tropes or narrative dynamics, something that when you see it for the first time, you're like, oh, that's cool. That is fun, like fun part of this issue or whatever. And then it keeps coming back and it becomes a bigger and bigger part of the story. And uh, that's what's happening, I think, at least in the in the opening pages of each Spider-Woman issue. It's really fun kind of dive into this character's mind and into her history. Um, and then from there, like we zoom back out out of the iris and um, go straight into some wild action, which in this issue includes riding on dinos. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if Carlo said this or i'm just imagining it or just like thinking this is the case but it feels like carla pacheco has been able to like say okay what's the wildest thing i can do in spider woman that i can pitch and then we'll tone it back and then we'll go from there and they just keep letting her do it yeah and it like it's just such a fun comic it's it's so great it's so good uh, all right, let's get to Star Wars land for Star Wars Bounty Hunters number five, written by Ethan Sachs, pencils by Paolo Villanelli, colors by Arif Prianto, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. Uh, this one is a big old throwdown between Boba Fett, Boba Fett. Boba Fett uh, and Valance, <laughs> as uh, as wrestling announcer Jim Ross would say, a true slobber knocker. Um, but they are they are fighting because of stuff that happened in their past in a big mess that they're embroiled in uh, that has you know come back to them in the, the present time with Nakano Lash and, and a bunch of other characters. And it is just if you if you want anything out of this, you want bounty hunters just beating the snot out of each other. And that's that's what you get here. All right, next up, we have Venom number 28. It's written by Donnie Cates with art by Juan Gideon, colors by Jesus Abertov, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. What's been so much fun, and maybe we'll talk to Ryan about this, it's that Ryan has been so busy. Ryan Spector has been so busy doing The King in Black. He's been working so hard on that series for so long now that uh, Venom has had the opportunity to uh, see a bunch of other artists jump on board and give their take on Eddie Brock. One of those artists that has done uh, a few issues is Juan Gideon. His acting um, that he, you know, puts the characters, uh, kind of faces into the way that he moves your eye across the page, the, uh, the way that he shows like a punch being thrown or how some spit gets knocked out of someone's mouth. It feels like heavy metal comics. To me, it reminds me of like this sort of like driving intense American comics mixed with manga, yeah. the feeling and some of the layouts and some things that just like propel you forward in a way that manga does in a different style than American comics. It's friggin' great. It's so good. And a huge shout out also to Jesus Abertov, who's doing some career best work. The way that he shades and colors this book is just gorgeous and gives it such a unique feeling. That's all the art talk. On the narrative side of things, we're moving quicker and quicker towards the King in Black. Um, this issue has a ton of great action um, with the heart kind of at the center of it, the thing that I think has become um, definitive of this run in general. 
this is one of those books I could talk about for hours and hours and hours. There's so much going on in here. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't get weighed down by any of that. It's just, uh, it moves at such a clip. It's so much fun to read. All right. Last book for us of the week is Ten of Swords, creation number one. This book is so friggin' good. It is written by Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard, art by Pepe Larraz, colors by Marte Gracia, letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. This is part one of 22 of Ten of Swords, and it freaking rules. It is 60 plus pages. <laughs> it is world building even feels small because mm -hmm. it's just like temporal building. It is universe building so much. It's multiverse building. It's it's everything I hoped for, but nothing I thought I would get from this book. The instant you get comfortable, the instant you feel like you know what's going on, even given all of like the weekly revelations and crazy things that are happening in every single X book, this book feels so different. Um, we had House of X and Powers of Ten. We had the Dawn of X. X of Swords is a new chapter, and we're entering a new era here. And it is truly the best of what comics are as a reading experience. Truly the best. So we have um, Pepe and Teeny coming on to This Week in Marvel. It's like, oh, you, you thought you liked Pepe Larraz before? Wait till you guys read this book. There's a panel of Apocalypse mm -hmm. where um, Apocalypse is basically pleading to the, the council, the, the Krakoan council, for help. Uh, in in doing something and I'm you know, trying to be vague, but the way he is lit, so it's between Pepe and Marte, it, like the texture here, the emotion in something that is so tight that you just seeing someone's eyes and nose, mouth, a little bit of their eyebrow, like it is th that panel to me is a masterclass in storytelling. Mm. It's so good and so. There's subtlety to it. There's intricacy. It just, man, it's really fantastic. Totally, comic. totally agreed. Couldn't agree more. Didn't even we didn't even talk about Saturnine. I know. Or or the like the the importance of uh, like how important this is for Apocalypse and two Apocalypse yep. and we're gonna be talking. Well, we are gonna be talking about Ten of Swords for the next bunch of weeks. So strap in, kids. Yeah, I can't wait. All right, that's what we have for individual issues on sale this week. It's a good one. Uh, now moving on to collections coming in print to your local comic shop. We have Axe of Vengeance, Marvel Universe, Avengers, West Coast, Epic Collection, Tales to Astonish, Heroes Reborn, Avengers, Incredible Hulk, Masterworks, Volume 14, Spider-Man, The Gauntlet, The Complete Collection, Volume 2, and Valkyrie Jane Foster, Volume 2, At the End of All Things. Yes. Uh, and then in Marvel Unlimited this week, we've got Spider-Woman is now in there. So the first issue of the series, if you want to get a taste of it, see what it's all about, get excited uh, and start jumping on the main book. Plus Valkyrie Jane Foster and X-Force and Deadpool and Excalibur and so many books we love. You can get the full list on Marvel.com and uh, read those. And you should also be reading the Wolverine issues we're going to be talking about with Mr. Ryan Stegman right now. Ryan Stegman, how are you, my friend? I'm fantastic. How are you? Doing great. Uh, as as Tucker, you mentioned before we started rolling, Ryan, you're a podcast 
Pro. Oh, How's the, the podcasting world been treating you these uh, these last couple of months? Um, I like it. I think that we've started to find a uh, groove with it. We've, we've had some fun guests on, and the, the more that we do, we just talk about comics, the easier it's been and the more it's been fun for us. So, you know, I do no preparation. I just show up and we just start talking pretty much. <laughs> Oh, I, I hope you brought that authentic Stegman energy to this episode of Hell yeah. Marvel's Polis. <laughs> yeah, I have no, no plans to say anything. <laughs> okay, Mr. Ryan Stegman, host of Stegman and his amazing friends podcast. We are going to talk about Wolverine issues 31 through 34 from the late 80s, early 90s series. Uh, these are by Larry Hama and Mark Silvestri and a bunch of other amazing creators. Uh, so... Ryan, why did you want to talk about these? Um, I just, I, I kind of, this is how I tend to read comic books. People always ask me what I'm reading right now. And my answer is never like what's on the shelf at the moment. I just, I just don't keep up in that way anymore. You know, I've, I had my, my heyday where I was, you know, $50 a week at the comic book store every week, but that's just not how I consume comics anymore. And this just happened to be the one that was on my nightstand when you guys asked. And I really, I, I loved it and I was really into it. And so I figured this would be a good place to go. Is there any like tangible influence that you could see in terms of like what you might be reading now versus like how you approach a page or how you read a script? Um, well, so the, the artist of the Wolverine that we're going to talk about is Mark Silvestri. And he's one of my all-time favorite artists. While I was reading this, I definitely saw a lot of things that he was doing that um, I definitely have pulled from, but you know, I, I hadn't read this before I, uh, before I read it this time. So I, I had seen a lot of Mark's old work, but I was much more familiar with, you know, his image comic stuff, um, than I was with this stuff. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely feel like I, I pull a lot from Mark. Um, and it was interesting seeing it in sort of like it's infant stages. Mm-hmm. What's funny, cause you say his early work and, I, I guess that kind of makes sense because Mark is probably still active drawing stuff for Top Cow and, and right. an image and stuff. But his first work uh, was in like 81, 82. Uh, and his first Marvel work, which is this is bonkers to me. His first Marvel piece was a Conan the Barbarian story in 1982, wow. which is wild. He did a bunch of Conan like way back in his early days. Like that's how he got his start at Marvel. And of course, you know, like I think of him as an uncanny X-Men artist first and foremost, I don't even like his Wolverine is not even my first thought, but right. I think Wolverine is like, they, they took him and like said, all right, we need Wolverine to be the book, the solo title for the X-Men. And they put Mark on it. Of course. Yeah, he's he's one of the best, uh, you know, figure artists that have ever done it. You know, he's clearly from the John Buscema line, which makes sense why he was doing um, Conan as well. But yeah, this stuff is pretty wild. Um, he he was, you know, his just his figure work and his uh, his expressions and all that stuff was so advanced at that time. This is interesting because normally when we have people on to do like little reading clubs and things like that, a lot of folks that we've had on pick like their all time favorite book or the book that like most impacted them as, you know, a young person or whatever. So this is very interesting to get insights on something that's just like, oh, yeah, I have this on hand and, uh, you know, 
only kind of looked at it for the first time recently. Um, you touched on it a little bit just there, but could you expand on when you, a professional comic book artist, are opening and reading a book, what struck you about this uh, in particular, however specific that is, however much of that is the art, however much of that is the story? Well, uh, a lot of it, a lot of times I do tend to think of it as what I would have thought if I read this when I was a kid, you know, I, I, I try to go back to that place. I didn't have access to comic books when I was, uh, until I was like 13 or 14. Um, and so when I started reading this one and I was, I was thinking about like what I would have thought about it if I was, you know, like 10 years old, if I would have read this and I would have read it over and over and over. I, I know I would have like, mm-hmm. it's so cool. My friend Riley Rossmo, who works for, uh, DC, he said, those were the comics that I read over and over as a kid. Um, he knows everything that happens in them uh, still to this day. And I thought that was really funny because I was just like, yeah, if I was your age when I was reading that, it would have blown my mind. My my head would have melted. I'm, I'm definitely on a kick where I'm trying to go back and read a lot of stuff that I missed because I didn't have the access uh, to it when I was younger. And this kind of falls in that category. Yeah, I'm like your friend. I, I read wolverine um this was one of like my books i remember it's weird i remember very specifically as a kid i didn't go to many comic conventions you know mm-hmm. the where I, I was growing up we didn't have a ton of money but so we i remember going to one comic convention and really searching for wolverine number 41 right that was the book i wanted and that one has wolverine and cable and saber tooth and they're in the sewers and I, I found it. I found that that book there, and like I read it over and over and over and Is over that again with LCD. Yeah, Albert and LCD. They're they're you know we've talked about them a bunch on this show. The everybody knows my deep love for them, and that's because of this era. So like when you brought these up, I got jazzed. I was so excited for this run. Well, one funny thing that happened the other day was I just Googled uh, Mark Silvestri Wolverine because I just wanted to see, or I wanted to see original art like what the originals look like because the inks in this are pretty wild. And so there was a page from heritage auctions that was, uh, that came up and I didn't, I haven't gotten to the LCD stuff yet. So, uh, there's this page and it's Wolverine and saber tooth fighting and cables on the page. But throughout the entire fight, (laughs) Wolverine is like getting his butt kicked and holding a little girl's head. (laughs) (laughs) and that's all it looks like it just looks like he forgot to draw the body or something so i was like riley what the heck is going on here why is he just holding a child's head while fighting and it was because it was lcd the you know the robotic kid you know whatever so that made a little more sense but it really just looks like he's just fighting with the little girl's head in his hand the whole time (laughs) did you have um did were you a wolverine fan or reader uh, in particular when you were growing up yeah, I mean, I, I remember um, I was really big into Lanil his like first Marvel stuff when he did Wolverine. Um, I I do feel like most of my Wolverine knowledge came from X-Men, um, you know, the, like the comics or the cartoons, the comics, you, like yeah. the uh, the Joe Mad stuff when at that time he was all feral and Joe Mad drew one of the coolest looking Wolverines. Um, I, I, I was a fan, but I, I do feel like when I was reading this also, I was thinking, you know, he might be one of my favorite characters and I just haven't done the deep dive, you know, like he's definitely, I I did do a little um, Wolverine run, but it was fairly short lived. 
Um, it was right around the time that I had a, um, a kid. And so I just kind of had to step off. Uh, but I was thinking like, you know, Wolverine's pretty cool. And that's something I should keep in the back pocket for the future. He'd be a fun one to write and draw, you know, like he's, he's just a, he's a cool character. Yeah. Yeah. I want to go back to the um, Silvestri original art. What was that like? What would it look like? Uh, Cause I don't, you know, I've seen obviously he, Dan Green inked um, Mark for, for a long, long time. Right. Uh, I don't think I've ever looked at the originals for these, these books. Well, I mean, so Mark now his stuff is very, I mean, there's lines all over the place. It's so cool looking and so intricate. Um, this was much um, sparser, and that's kind of why, why I wanted to see it. I just wanted to see what Silvestri's art looks like when it's not uh, rendered, you know, as much. And uh, it looks like Dan Green was using a lot of brush. I mean, possi- possibly all brush, I would say. Um, and it just looks, you know, meticulous. It looks great. It, it, for a minute there, I was like, I wonder if this is just like printing that it looks this wild. If this was just how printing was. And then in the middle of this trade that I have, they go into the Alan Davis issues that came out around the same time. I think it was a little little graphic novel that came out. And all of a sudden it's like, nope, that's it wasn't the printing. These guys just had a vision for how they were going to do it. And, you know, Dan Green's inks are nuts. And, you know, you can, they kind of, it's not like I didn't di- like them at first, but they definitely grow on you as you're like, this is something different and cool. Using this this book and the discussion of this book as a little platform to jump back and forth in time a little bit, do you have any sense of perspective of how you've grown or changed as an artist over time? Even with your, you know, going back to, you know, your, your early Marvel work or whatever it might be, is that something that you have any awareness of or is it just so like just so instinctual that it's hard to have that perspective? No, I, de- I mean, I definitely am very aware, uh, especially when I look back at stuff, you know, I tend to look at what I've done immediately in the moment and think that it stinks. And then I'll after a couple of years, I'll look back at it and be like, oh, that wasn't so bad. But then once I get even more um, distance from it. So like if you go all the way back to when I was doing like She-Hulks or, you know, anything like that. I can see such a, a difference and a growth artistically. Um, and I, I do sort of pride myself on growing and not, I mean, definitely evolving, but also just getting better. Like, I think that you can objectively say this is a, this is better art than this was. It's interesting because I remember even going back to when I was an intern at Marvel and I remember reading Amazing Spider-Man Renew Your Vows then. One of the most fun things about reading so many comics is tracking the progress of writers or artists, just seeing them jump on with, uh, you know, a one shot here or a, a smaller series or something like that, and then see them kind of slowly being given more and more responsibility, bigger characters, things like that. Um, did you always have like the characters that you wanted to to tackle or is it more just a matter of the right time the right writer the right you know opportunity i definitely think that i came in be you know aiming towards the right character which was for me spider-man like i i i spent my whole early part of my career chasing spider-man and i got to do a lot of spider-man you know i got to do um scarlet spider i got to do superior spider-man stuff like that but i i think that as i've evolved um, I've learned that cause I, I have done side, you know, I have moved away from Spider-Man and done other things. Like I wouldn't have known 
that I would have loved to draw Venom, which right. interestingly enough, when I started on, um, when I did Venom Inc., I realized I've never drawn Venom in a Marvel comic book, which is insane. And as soon as I started drawing, I was like, oh yeah, I love that character. Uh, it's the same with um, Medusa from uh, Inhumans, where I just realized all of a sudden I was like, oh, I, I love drawing this character. And you just never know. So now um, I'm less focused on specific characters and more just be more just the writer like who who mm-hmm. do i want to work with and you know for the for the i mean it's pretty much i like working with donnie so <laughs> you know i think that i would work on almost anything that he writes because um i'm sure that our sensibilities on that will end up lining up and you know so i, I think that my approach has changed over the years to i just want to work on really good comic books Speaking of really good comic books and really good writers, um, let's talk about these books here, which are all written by Larry Hama. We had Larry on, I think it was This Week in Marvel last year. um, And just, I was like, I almost got nervous because he wrote so many books that I read as a kid. And like when I was going back and rereading them as I, and going back rereading these, I was like, man, this dude was on fire. Right. These are so friggin' good. The pacing, the dialogue, mm-hmm. and the sense of, like, yes, Chris Claremont created so much of what we think about Wolverine, but I think Larry's work is really what solidifies it and gives it that really hones that voice and sharpens it. Like, when I think of the way Wolverine speaks, I think of the way Larry writes him. I might as well jump in and give the full credits for this first issue, number 31 which is written by Larry Hama with pencils by Mark Silvestri, inks by Dan Green, letters by Pat Brosso, um, colors by Glynis Oliver. Um, uh, Ryan, because you know this so well, I actually have a question for you. Where in the like lineage of Wolverine's connection to Japan does this fall? Like, Is this still early on in that being like such a part of his... Uh, connection or is this kind of already building on uh, a lot that's come before this is building on a lot that's come before but this solo series like this is the exploration of wolverine's non-x-men time and so the the these first three years of the solo book have been getting him into madripoor getting him into dealing with yakuza and, and dealing with japan and all these different pieces but like that goes back into the early 80s, um, you know, when he was they were in Japan and he was, um, you know, engaged to Mariko and like there's all kinds of great history during the Uncanny X-Men time. And then into the Frank Miller, Chris Claremont limited series, which predates this this series by like five or six years. So there's tons of of great stuff. But this to me is is like this is the meat of getting to see Wolverine in this environment on his own. Patch is one of my favorite, like, bonkers-ass ways to take a character and, and just put a little twist on him. It's so good. I love yeah. Patch. Yeah. I was I was really – I think I love – in particular, I love the antagonists that are kind of placed at odds with, with, uh, with Wolverine in this story. It just feels like such a perfect giant obstacle for him to like go berserker on, you know, it's just like, it is just so freeing um, for that kind of madness that was delightful to read packed in with the kind of what I almost think of as like the 
setting equivalent of how Wolverine talks. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's very, it's dark and it's, there's a brooding aspect to it. And it's very um, uh, like laconic in a way that is just like ominous and, and, and strange and very unique. Digging into this kind of thing is, it feels definitive of the character in a way which is why I was wondering about like the, the Japan aspect of it, because it feels like such a, a kind of microcosm of who the character is. Uh, This stuff also, one thing that I'd like to point out is just Mark's, you know, the stuff that I like of Mark's now, he's got these wild layouts where he's always got the big panel with the little panels around it. Like he does it on almost every single page. This was, this is really cool stuff because he was so subdued with his storytelling. It showed what a great storyteller he is. Like, there is no question about what's happening in any of these panels. I do wonder, do you think that he was, I'm curious if he was working from, you know how Buscema used to do breakdowns and then somebody else would do finishes? I wonder how tight his pencils were on this because early on the inks are so nuts. It's insane. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's wild because one of the things that I was, that like struck me, rereading it here was how much the art reminded me of Mike Mignola. Yes. Time. I agree. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, thinking the same thing, especially like, like it's just, it's those weird things that Mike does. The, the, the way the legs move, the arms, there's slight, like almost rock like shape to certain limbs that like the, the upside down triangle body shape at times, like all those and the deep, deep, shadows which is a lot of what you're talking about with the inks in there i was i don't remember mark being so having that that mignola like vibe so heavily at this time but i'm glad i'm glad you saw it too because i was like wow that's awesome yeah i mean i happen to be reading some hellboy stuff at the same time and plus this this trade that i have i don't know if you're looking at a trade but it opens up with that Mignola Simonson Wolverine story where he goes to the Savage Land and all that. Oh, the jungle adventure, right? Yeah. You you did mention the legs in this. Some of them are so hilarious. The ankles are so thin. <laughs> it's, it's nuts. And they always are like and this is not to disparage it because I love it. Like I think it's the coolest I, I've actually started to already steal it. Um <laughs> but yeah, like like the way that they stand on the ground, they're never like planted on the ground. They're almost like always floating above the ground. There's like this sort of ethereal, <laughs> you know, just accepted that they're all they all float instead of stand. It's so cool. So it actually it says by Larry Hama and Mark Silvestri on the cover, but it's got the Mignola story in it and it's got that Alan Davis story in it too. Ryan H and M, what you were just saying all of those things that you were talking about that were like that flow through this artistically or how the, the, the physique of a character is rendered in these pages feels like you're describing Ryan, other Ryan over here, art to me. Like it feels very, very similar. The kind of upside down triangle, the, the, the kind of um, like stone faced quality of a lot of the characters really comes out for me in the nose in particular. There's this kind of like carved out of um, marble, like big nose that's like clearly been broken a bunch of times mm-hmm. look that I see like directly almost one-to-one between some of these pages and some of these close-ups. And then, you know, like what I've gotten very used to seeing with like 
Eddie Brock or, or someone nowadays in, in Venom. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely, I mean, I just, I think I steal from him. No. Honestly, I don't mean to, <laughs> but you know, you, you start, you just, you realize it in your own work later, uh, how much that you take from somebody. I, I definitely like how everybody he's cartoony, but still everybody's like handsome or, you know, pretty like they're the way that he does it. I do think I did when I did Wolverine, the one thing that I would take back, um, is that I definitely went, leaned into a more ugly Wolverine where I kind of like uh, this version. I, I, like I said, I was obsessed with, um, Joe Mads, um, Wolverine, and he did this like super feral, like he, he looked like an animal. And so I was kind of leaning into that. But now that I see this stuff, I'm like, you know, I kind of like a uh, handsome Wolverine. <laughs> but what I love about this is they're like, they, Mark is able to straddle the line. You get Wolverine sitting down, being annoyed that he's drinking like single malt scotch and it like tastes like barbecue. Mm -hmm. And, and he looked dapper in his, in his uh, tuxedo and he owns the princess bar. And then a couple pages, you know, later he's torn to shreds, vicious and, you know, messed up and snarling. And he kind of looks gross and gnarly. Right. And you can get that from the same guy. And that's, you know, it's one of those amazing things about the character who can fit those things mm -hmm. he's great yeah there's a line in the second issue where wolverine says help me up darling i'm about to get me some payback even if i have to drag myself down there to get it and it's like this really great panel it's very it's like a super close-up shot of wolverine and it's just like that sense of danger is the thing i love about wolverine like he's he's a good person but he's a terrifying monster man Right. Yeah, like at any time he can fly off the handle and that's portrayed so well in this. Yeah. And the other thing that I love, uh, I don't know how you guys feel about it, is Wolverine, like, he is not unkillable. He is, like, nearly killed multiple times. And, like, you know, over the years he's gotten, like, to the point of, like, you can't stop him. I like pulling that back a little bit and that element of danger. I definitely thought the same thing while I was reading this, like when he gets, you know, run through with a sword and he kind of, he basically dies and he goes to that plane and he sees, uh, uh, Jean Grey and he ends up pulling it out. Cause I was thinking like, we've, you know, we have gotten to a point where he's so overpowered. Um, you know, like the, there's the story. I can't remember who did it, where he, he basically regenerates from just an eyeball. <laughs> and stuff like that and uh that's you know that's definitely cool don't get me wrong but uh just having the danger there of him possibly dying like he he definitely he's never in this whenever he's in a battle he is never just like yeah whatever i'll i'll regenerate i'll be fine he does not want to get shot he does not want to get stabbed you know he wants to uh avoid that if he can one of the moments where i feel like you really feel that and you feel like how that like seeds anger and the retribution to come of is comes kind of to fruition in 33 which i think is my favorite scene in this story and it probably is meant to be the readers one of the readers favorite scenes like after he kind of like claws himself out of the grave and then kind of interrogates this person and then we go to another scene and then we come back 
and he's finally kind of has his like Aragorn coming through the doors moment. And just there's one page with just has four panels and the emotions are just so there. They're so like on the, you know, on every character's sleeve. And I love this one page because I see such a, a line between like German expressionism film to film noir to what this story is because you have these like three close-ups or mid shots, mid close-ups that are so like, they're like keyframe art, you know, like that one on the bottom left. I love so much with the splash of color behind him. And he's got these like hands as yeah. he's kind of shocked to see Wolverine there. Um, and then the other guy is just kind of lighting a match to smoke his, his, cigarette or whatever it, it's just so cool and yeah. the contrast of those things of him coming through the one guy being shocked the boss guy being like i don't know take care of it guys or whatever daikumo and the, yeah. the the dude on the left is goro um so I, awesome you know like these pretty minor characters that larry gives such larry and mark give such personality to mm-hmm. and such feeling to even though they they don't last very long right this just feels like every 80s action movie. Like they've got this pit open with tigers fighting a wolf. Of course, somebody's <laughs> got to fall, fall in there. Right. Like it's all, it's like a big set piece, uh, 80s action movie type thing. And, you know, of course the guy goes in and the wolf is fighting the, uh, I mean, uh, this goes back to, um, me, if I could have read this when I was 10, this would have just been the coolest thing of all time. I think I would have been following everybody around being like, you have to read this. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Now I I wanted to focus on a couple of those characters because I mentioned Daikumo. He's the, the big bad Yakuza dude who has the spider tattoo on his face, which is like that rules all the tattoo work in here. I thought was really excellent in the the first Mm -hmm. issue, the three dudes with the dragon, the connecting dragon tattoo. Mm -hmm. I was like, man, that's so cool. And the way Mark illustrates it and, and like, you know, then you see, Daikumo throughout this who that's just so brazen uh like culturally speaking that is that's a big energy move like that guy is like I'm into it uh and then you have Goro who's like the bad dude who has the uh prophecy that says only a dead man can kill him Mm -hmm. which I thought was great and it's like very clear what's going on from the from the get-go Wolverine actually leaves him alive so the prophecy doesn't come true he has taken Thunderbolt, which should kill him. But if only a dead man can kill him, then the Thunderbolt won't. Then that could leave him alive. That's a good we point. Haven't, we've literally, we, I, I was looking around. We've not seen this character since the story. You could do a story where Goro's been messed up on the Thunderbolt for 20 years, 30 years, comes back for revenge. And he's like, Wolverine. I can't die and he's like, the, because the Thunderbolt like makes him superhuman, he's like just this nightmare of a thing. Uh, you could have a lot of fun with that. Uh, you know, Wolverine like just showing him mercy as punishment. I mean, there's a bunch of ways to do it, but that could be a cool story to tell for Ryan Stegman, writer, artist. All right, I'm, I'm working on it right now. <laughs> yeah. The wheels are turning. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Rico, the, the, the one who she worked for Goro um, in this story. She actually ends up showing up a couple times later on. She shows up. Um, she's dead now, but I mean, it's the Marvel Universe. <laughs> yeah, she can come back. Yeah. Um, 
Man, I'm so glad you picked this these these issues, and we still have one more. Thirty four was actually probably better than the that first arc, right? Alone, um, alone. yeah. This this <laughs> issue is jam packed. It's crazy. So why do you like thirty four even more than the amazing thirty one through thirty three? The fact that they pulled off this great story um, in one issue is pretty incredible, and also just the fact that the re- the big reveal at the end. I almost feel like I I almost feel like I shouldn't say it because I do want people to read it, but it's old. It's, we're past spoiler range. Uh, <laughs> you find out that Wolverine was in World War One, World War Two, World War Two. That's what I mean. Sorry. Yeah, what a great little detail, and then. I, I do appreciate the silliness of how they get this into this story where he's like, he's fishing in the mountains, which again, like perfect. Put Wolverine in the mountains, snow, he's in Alberta, Canada. And then these guys just come up and they're like, hey, what are you doing here? And he's like, I have a license to be here. And then they're like, well, look out for this bad guy. And he's like, I know where the bad guy is. I can smell him. And then they're just like, come with us. Let's go find this bad guy together. Larry freaking Hama, y'all. Yeah, he does. That 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 takes three pages, and mm-hmm. we're set up to have this little adventure. And uh, there's, I mean, it would be it would honestly be enough if they were just hunting this guy, and they're trying to catch this guy who's got this girl that he's you know running away with, and then you find out that Wolverine was in World War II. Like that's plenty, but there's a werewolf in here, or you know, a, a wolf animal story that goes along with it so it's like it's got like you know four or five plots going on it's incredible also again i gotta go back to to larry's writing um there's a quote where you're in the flashback in world war ii and the sheriff the mountie is thinking about the flashback and he's like quote the air under the flare was pink with blood and the screaming lord the screaming and it just like the way it's it's Wolverine before he, you know, had the adamantium, before, you know, he didn't realize he had the bone claws, but he's got this giant knife and he's just just tearing people to shreds, tearing Germans to shreds. And it is wild. Of course, you know, Larry is a is a vet and I, I he was not in World War Two, but he um like when he writes, you know, military and war scenes. There's just something like extra. To yeah. It. And I think that I don't know if it was him or if it was Mark took it upon himself, but it seems like Mark went super uh, referenced with all of his World War II gear. Drawing military gear is hard. It, it just is <laughs> like it's not what we normally draw. We draw guys with big muscles and, uh, you know, their clothes always fit tight. But Mark's clothes are always draped and he, he did an awesome job on the um on the military stuff. I will say one of my favorite things about Mark's art in general is that their clothes always look like they're made out of shredded paper <laughs> or crumpled paper, you know, it's so cool looking. And then, you know, it, there is a realism to it, but it's, it's still, it's still pure Mark Silvestri. It's, you know, it's his world. There's one thing that I want to point out just because listeners can't see this, but I'll just say it's the page. There's like a, uh, when the character's hanging up, it's he's a military guy hanging up down, upside down from a tree. I feel like this drawing looks like I did it. Yeah. <laughs> you see that? Yep. Yeah, yeah, the eyes. The yeah, eyes. I don't know why. I was just like, when I saw that, I was like, God, like, it looks like I drew that. How much am I stealing from this guy? And, and to what you were saying, Tucker, the way you draw noses sometimes. I love when you draw a big, bulbous nose. And this, like, the direction, the angle... 
Wow, I see it a million percent right now as I'm looking at it on Marvel Unlimited. Oh boy. My last note about uh, Mark's art, the last panel of this story and the dialogue that goes with it is is perfect. Uh, like that's the what a way to end an issue mm-hmm. is just a heartbreaker and so beautiful and subtle and sad and and, and amazing. Yeah, and I wonder if the well, I don't know um, how uh, Larry and Mark worked at this time. I wonder if it was Marvel style or if Larry was fully scripting. But just like one of the the touches in this last scene where they drop the um, flashlight and the flashlight is the only light in the scene mm-hmm. is so perfect. These are good ass comic books. Uh, yeah. and you know what's fun? I was looking. Um, thanks to our producer Mr. for putting in some information in our in our document here. Uh, this came out thirty years ago, to uh, roughly of when we were recording this. Wow. The uh, thirty three came out September eleventh, nineteen ninety, and thirty four came out October 9th, nineteen ninety. So go. these wow thirty years on, these books have aged so perfectly. They are just as damn good today as they were 30 years ago. Absolutely. So Ryan, what I loved about this, in addition to everything we're talking about here, is that the issue 34 story takes place in Canada, a place Mm -hmm. that I have very fond memories of sharing with you. Do you remember our time in Canada at a little restaurant outside of uh, Fan Expo Canada, Toronto, whatever that was. I do. There, it was a sushi restaurant. I believe uh, a very cavalier waiter was telling us about his propensity for uh, stealing comic books on the internet, <laughs> which is such an odd thing to do to people who work on the comic books. I got so angry. Oh my god! I got yeah, so I almost like got like physical. I was like, <laughs> everyone here makes our living off of comics it's we're we're paying for our food here should we just walk (laughs) away and steal the food from your restaurant like i was so angry yeah you were furious it was awesome yeah (laughs) and and so that will always be tied up with my memories of canada i mean we hate canada now right yeah i mean it's we're anti-canada yep canada is canceled (laughs) uh mr stegman Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. This was fun. Next time you get a cool book on your nightstand, let us know. We'll talk about it again. <laughs> All right. I think I'm, it's going to be the next volume of this series. <laughs> I got to keep going. Oh, I want to hear about your reactions to Albert and LCD when you finally start getting into those stories. I'm excited to get into those stories and what she's all about and why she's just a head that he carries around. <laughs> Wait till you read her dialogue. Okay. Oh, there's, there's a lot to come for you. It's going to be great. Ryan Stegman, thank you, and we'll uh, hopefully we'll we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks again to the one and only Ryan Stegman. Ryan, I'm so glad that you told that story about being at that restaurant in Canada because it like it somehow organically is the perfect encapsulation of that of those issues we read. Canada, okay, sushi, Japan, and then the th- crucial third part being super pissed off (laughs) like i almost went like there's that the there's the panel in one of these issues i think it's maybe 31 or 32 that we just read and where wolverine talks about like seeing red going into a berserker age 
and it, this wasn't just like me and Ryan having like a nice casual like fun dinner with friends it was Ryan and his wife it was me it was like three other Marvel staffers maybe four probably another creator or two it was a big dinner like we were having a great time and I just like it was it was seething yeah I still feel angry about it know, and this is like 10 years later <laughs> that's nuts yeah Boy, I get it I get it what I'm trying to say is Please don't steal comics. Yeah, there are on. people who make their careers out of this stuff, <laughs> yeah. namely Ryan Stegman and, and <laughs> all of our creators. And nonetheless, yes, that was a fun time, but that's it for this show. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, MR Daniel, and Megan Bagala. Dildeboff is our director of audio, and Brad Barton is the hunter in darkness but like only a little bit of darkness he's also scared of the dark <laughs> i'm ryan and i'm tucker and this is marvel your universe